This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kara ong Associate Director at JMU Civic. Co-hosting along with me for this episode is Angelina Clapp, a Democracy Fellow and recent graduate majoring in political science at James Madison University. In this episode, we're going to talk with Michael Pfeiffer, a voting rights and political law attorney in Washington, D.C., who has represented political candidates at the federal and state levels, including presidential candidates. Michael has also consulted on and drafted state ballot initiatives related to election laws. He currently represents a number of national nonprofits that are part of a bipartisan effort to expand the use of vote at home, also called universal vote by mail. Enjoy the episode. Um, So amidst the COVID-19 public health crisis, many are pondering how we can have safe elections this year. And vote by mail has increased in salience. And you work with um, a national coalition um, on vote by mail election systems. Um, I wonder if, if you can talk a little bit, um, at, if you can start by, by giving our listeners um, who may not know the difference between uh, vote by mail and absentee voting. Can you explain what those two options are? Absolutely, yes. And, and uh, first off, thank you for having me on your on your podcast this morning. Um, the, the two terms are, are definitely used interchangeably, but there is a very important and nuanced difference. Um, it's really all about the framing. So functionally, sure, mail ballots are mail ballots. They're cast outside of a polling place. Um, but the, the key difference between vote by mail, and I'm going to, I'm going to call that vote at home. And I'll explain more about that uh, later on. But the the difference between vote at home and absentee voting is that, you know, in a vote at home system, it simply requires that you be registered and the government automatically sends a ballot to, you know, every registered voter without them having to proactively request one. With absentee voting, um, you know, there are, well, first of all, I, I think absentee is an antiquated term. It, it started in the Civil War. <clears throat> um, it requires voters to proactively uh, request a ballot. And um, there are five full voted home states, uh, Hawaii, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, and Utah. Um, and every other state has a variation of an absentee ballot system. Some are... Uh, no excuse. Some require an excuse. Some have a permanent permanent absentee system in place. Um, but again, the, the key difference is that uh, for all other uh, mail ballots outside of the, the full voter home systems, voters have to proactively request a ballot. Can you talk about some of the common misconceptions of vote by mail? We call it vote at home because um, voters do not actually have to cast their ballot by mail. So in, in the full voter home system, uh, voters get their ballots automatically and then they can either cast it by mail or the majority of them um, actually drop it off in person at uh, you know, safe, secure, conveniently located drop boxes or vote centers. And, and that's because people like the, you know, the feeling of, of voting in person, 
they like they like seeing that they've you know handed their their ballot either into a box or to an election official and that's great so you know the reason we don't call it vote by mail is because vote by mail kind of implies that it has to be done in the mail and a lot of people do and with absentee voting you know most people probably cast their ballots by mail there um and that's because states you know with their absentee rules haven't allowed for you know convenient ballot drop-off but states like arizona and florida which are you know traditional um absentee states although they're both no excuse and um at least Arizona has a permanent system. Uh, voters can, can drop their mail ballots off at any early in-person um, voting location in both of those states, and and that's really, I mean, that's that's great because you know that's a that's a pro-voter um, policy. And so basically, you know, what I'm getting at is, vote by mail. It doesn't have to be in the mail. You re- you receive your ballot in the mail, but you know the critical step of actually casting your ballot. Um, can be done in person. So, so Michael, I wonder if I wonder if you can tell us what states can do to prepare for increased voting by mail and absentee ballots this election season. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, you know, with, with something like seventy-five day, days to go, uh, we don't have much time. But but states are definitely doing uh, really important things. Um, if, if we're thinking about this through the through the lens of you know voter education, voter confidence being the most important thing, um, I think the two most important things states can do are um, ballot tracking and drop boxes. So you know ballot tracking is a tool. Colorado pioneered this. Um, you can literally track your ballot um, as if it were a, an Amazon package. Um, you get a text message when your ballot is sent to you. You get a text message, you know, once you put it in the mail or drop it off that it's been uh, received. And then you get a text message once it's returned to the, um, uh, you know, state or local election office. So, I mean, it, it gives voters confidence that their ballot is actually, you know, making it to, to where it needs to go. So ballot tracking is one thing. Uh, I know New Jersey, number of states are considering adding this and then drop boxes. So, the majority of people in Colorado um, do not actually put their ballots in the mail. And that's why we call it vote at home. Um, vote by mail is a bit misleading. It, it suggests that everyone's uh, putting their ballots back in the mail. But the majority of them uh, drop it off in person at conveniently located drop boxes around their um, cities, counties and towns. And that's, you know, that gives voters confidence again if they if they don't trust the post office. Or if they like the feeling of, you know, handing their ballot in, you know, that in-person voting experience, um, drop boxes, you know, putting as many as possible safe, secure drop boxes um, in conveniently located, um, you know, positions throughout throughout the jurisdiction, I think is is really important. And and actually, Governor Northam um, just yesterday, uh, you know, released a request. Um, for funds for drop boxes in his um, budget request before November. Um, so, you know, I, I think those are the two most important things. Uh, just quickly, one of my, one of the groups I work with, the National Voter Home Institute, they put together an elections toolkit 
for elections officials um, as they ramp up towards November. It includes envelope best practices, signature verification best practices, you know, ballot drop boxes, ballot tracking, where to put them, how to implement them, um, outbound operations, voter education, inbound operations, ballot processing best practices, and then, you know, critically post-election risk limiting audits. So um, I would, you know, encourage people to go check that out. But lot, lots can be done. You know, there, there's a lot to do, but, but just focusing on, on the, the key uh, mechanisms that will help, um, you know, in both ensure the accuracy of, of the count, but also give voters confidence uh, that this was a you know fair election, I think, are the most important things to do. Can you um, further go into detail about the implications of vote by mail for political participation and civic engagement? Absolutely. So vote by mail, vote at home. Uh, it's a great idea in normal times, but you know I would argue it's essential during the pandemic. Um, before COVID hit this year. Uh, folks that were pushing the vote at home system around the country uh, were focusing on, you know, the, the various um, positive benefits of the, the vote at home system. So it increases turnout um, rather dramatically, especially in, in primaries. Uh, in 2018, the vote at home states were roughly 15 points higher than the national average. Um, it allows voters to get to know their ballot, spend time with their ballot, and hedges against, you know, sick kids, bad weather, unforeseen overtime on election day. Um, you know, there's a security element of, of voter home systems. They are paper ballots that cannot be hacked and produce a paper trail for risk limiting audits after the election. So, um, you know, Colorado, for example, was was rated in 2018, the, the safest state to vote. Um, and signature verification plays an important role in, in uh, making sure that uh, ballots are being cast by the people who uh, they're being sent to. Uh, voter home systems cost less. Colorado, for instance, has reduced the cost per voter by $6 on average, which is a savings of 40% since they've implemented a full voter home system. Um, and there's an equity element. Uh, recent research shows that voter home turns people out higher among all groups. Um, it doesn't it doesn't really benefit one political party over the other, but um, you know, particularly for low propensity voters and younger voters, um, the voter home systems, you know, uh, impact those groups turnout more so than than others. And that makes sense, right? Because um, you know, high propensity voters, they're gonna cast their ballots regardless, either in person or they're gonna you know, request their ballot um, in an absentee state. And for many of them, they're, uh, you know, above the age of 65. So in, in some of these uh, excuse states, um, there are carve outs for voters who are above 65. They don't need to provide an excuse, which, you know, some people are arguing is uh, age discrimination. But um, in any event, the, the folks that, that don't show up to the polls, um, you know, if you put a ballot in their hands automatically, chances are they're going to vote it, right? Or at least their their chances of voting increase um, in that scenario versus you know having to go to the polls. So, um, so that was kind of the the story before COVID. 
um, after COVID, the, the narrative changed to, you know, your health depends on, on not going to a poll place this fall, right? And um, obviously a number of states have uh, tinkered with their election system to uh, you know, try full voter home systems in, in the primary. And they had, you know, largely positive results. Um, but, you know, and, and obviously it's, it's become um, much more politicized in, in the run up to the election, which is unfortunate. Um, but I mean, on the whole, uh, voter home systems, you know, increased turnout uh, dramatically, which is, you know, I would argue the most important thing for a healthy democracy. Yeah, I if I could just ask a, a follow up here too. You know, I've seen some political science research that also shows that vote by mail increases the opportunity for deliberation over the ballot as well. So it's it it is about increasing turnout, but it's also a greater opportunity for deliberation and informed voting <laughs> because there's there's more time um, you know to really contemplate it. Uh, that's absolutely right. Um, and, and, you know, further research shows that that people in, in voter home systems, they go further down the ballot. Right. And, you know, a lot of people just think of elections as, uh, you know, the federal elections, the president, Senate, House, whatever. But I mean, local elections are very important. And for many people who go into polling places, you know, they don't know. Um, they haven't seen any of the names on the ballot before um, in their in their local elections. Maybe they're anxious. They're worried about holding people up. There was a line out the door. So, you know, they, they rush when they get to their poll booth. Having having the time, as you said, to to look over the, the full ballot, you know, maybe even do, you know, research in real time as, as you're as you're looking over. I mean, it's it does produce a more informed voting electorate. So absolutely agree with you. You mentioned how um, how vote by mail has become politicized this year. Um, and, you know, we've we've seen especially now the the Postal Service was kind of re-gearing before this pandemic. Um, and now it has become sort of more essential <laughs> um, in terms of delivery as we've entered this pandemic. Um, and, you know, there was, there, you know, there's, of course, a lot of concerns about voting by mail and, and what may happen given the capacity of the Postal Service and, and some of the trends that had been started before the pandemic began um, yeah. in, in terms of, you know, shifting the agency and, and how it works and, and what services it provides and the potential for opening up to privatization, for example. Um, you know, my understanding from recent news is that the Postal Service has requested that people, you know, give it extra time um, in terms of delivery. And so I wonder, you know, what your thoughts are in terms of the amount of time people take to vote by mail and when they should vote. Um, and, and how the, how it's politicized, um, you know, it may affect vote by mail this election year. There's a lot going on in this space. Um, and it's, it's a loaded question. And 
I can start in any number of places here. Um, the, the, the main thing I want to say about this is that, and, and I work closely, um, and some of my clients work closely with the National Association of Letter Carriers, um, is that the, U, the USPS has got this. They have the capacity, even with some of the cuts that have been made, to handle uh, mail ballots in the 2020 election. They, on average, handle about 500 million pieces of mail a day. Um, the most ambitious um, forecasts for how many people are actually going to cast a ballot, um, you know, by mail is is somewhere in the 100 million range. So that would produce about 300 million pieces of election mail. Um, that's one to two percent of the USPS's total volume. So, and, and you know, I, I don't know the exact number, but, you know, around the December holiday season, I mean, they handle like 10 times that much or something. So they, the, the point is that while it's being politicized, which is completely unfortunate, um, the post office is going to um, be able to handle the, the surge in mail voting. Now, the, you know, a, a lot of news um, picked up a letter that the general counsel for the post office sent to 46 states plus the District of Columbia. The letter varied, um, you know, depending on each state's rules, but basically it was kind of a CYA letter. Um, and, you know, for take Pennsylvania, for example, their rules allow voters to request a mail ballot up to three days before the election. That really doesn't give the post office much time at all to turn that around. And if you're talking about Pennsylvania, where um, you know they are going to have a significant increase in the amount of mail balloting this year, um, you know it's it's really a combination of the state and local state and local election officials and their processing of the applications, and then turning around and and having the post office send out the ballot. I mean some of these states, the deadlines are super tight. So um, even in normal times, um, you know, the post office would have, would have a hard time with that. And that's, you know, I think that's the message that uh, needs to get out to voters, which is, you know, if you're going to, you know, when you make your plan to vote this year, um, I would argue that the best way to do it is to vote by mail um, because clearly the, the health risks of going to a poll place are, are increased, but um, if you're going to do that, apply as early as possible and return it as early as possible. Um, that's, you know, I think the most important message that um, that voters need to hear. And, and by the way, there, you know, there have been polls released over the last few weeks that that show that, unfortunately, um, you know, because the president has been. Uh, knocking the post office so much, even though the president really can't do all that much, you know, on the post office, um, people are starting to, to fear that their ballots, you know, won't be counted. And that's really unfortunate because they will, right? On the, on, on the whole, mail ballots will be handled well by the post office. So um, that's a long way of saying that um, there's definitely some unfortunate things happening, but I, I really think that the post office is going to do a good job this November. 
Um, a recent report by a wide range of experts warns that states are woefully unprepared for elections this fall. What should states do to ensure fair and legitimate elections this year? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I would argue that, um, and, and you've seen some states do this, I, I would argue that, that states should move their systems to entirely uh, vote-at-home uh, systems. But clearly, you know, we have something like 75 days to the election. That's not going to happen uh, for most. You've seen uh, Nevada, New Jersey, California have done that. Montana, uh, Governor Bullock uh, just recently announced that the state would do a, a county option and uh, counties have been opting into that. So in Montana, by the way, they they have something over 70% of their voters cast ballots uh, by mail anyway. But um, Maryland did this for the primary. They broke the record for, for primary turnout. And then the Governor Hogan uh, backtracked and, and said that, um, you know, uh, they would have to apply for their mail ballots for November, which will cause confusion and administrative headaches. So, you know, to answer your question, you know, there are going to be some serious administrative headaches in a lot of these states that because of the pandemic will be handling more mail ballots than they ever have before. So, you know, I think voter expectations and voter confidence is really important. Um, and state and local election officials should be doing everything they can to educate voters on how to properly cast a mail ballot. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, one, one issue that we're going to see, in, especially in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, um, where, you know, again, they're going to be handling a significant increase in volume of mail ballots is when will we, as, as a public, know the results? Um, and, you know, if, if that goes on for days or weeks, that provides an opportunity for, for um, you know, people to spread disinformation, which would, you know, create doubt in the belief that elections were actually fair and accurate, right? So, so what can states do? I think changing the rules, and there are some efforts underway in Michigan and Pennsylvania to allow the election officials there to start processing ballots before election day would be important. So there's a difference between processing and tabulating uh, ballots. Processing allows, you know, in Colorado, uh, the ballots are sent in, you know, beginning 21 days before the election. And the, the election officials there can process the ballots, get them ready to, you know, come election night, uh, you know, click a button. And I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but, you know, in a matter of 60 minutes, they can tabulate quickly all of the ballots they receive uh, before election day. Currently in Pennsylvania and Michigan, election officials can't start processing the ballots until election day. So clearly, and you saw this in the Pennsylvania primary, there were significant delays in announcing the results, which I, I think the media needs to also get in on this education campaign to, to let the public know that, you know, just because there are delays in voting doesn't mean that the, the, the accuracy of the results is being affected negatively, right? Um, I think, I think, I think that's really important. Um, I think providing for safe and sufficient in-person, uh, in-person voting options is important because, you know, there will be a lot of people who, 
um, you know, go to the polls this November. Um, you saw um, you know, in Louisville, Kentucky, for their primary, they they did a massive election super center that um, was a bit controversial because while you know they they closed a number of of other in person polling sites, um, it wasn't reported well, but the election supercenter had the capacity of 18 different poll places, you know, at the fairgrounds, right? And, and you didn't see any lines there. And um, compare that with, with what you saw in, in Georgia, where, you know, they had hour-long lines, three-hour-long lines. In D.C., some people I saw, uh, D.C. did a really bad job in the primary. Some people were waiting, you know, past midnight to cast their ballot. Um, DC is now going to, they're going to send a ballot to every registered voter, um, for the November election. But, um, I'm working with a group, uh, I don't know if you've seen in the news, but, you know, owners of NHL teams, NBA teams, uh, the Dodgers, they're opening up their arenas and stadiums to be election super centers in November. And that's a really good thing. Um, because, you know, people want to feel safe when they go uh, vote in person this November and being able to provide, you know, six feet apart when standing in lane in, in lines and, um, you know, allowing people to, to really feel comfortable, I think is going to be uh, critical. So following the, following the Supreme Court's 5-4 decision in Shelby County versus Holder in June 2013, many states, particularly in the South and including here in Virginia, um, and elsewhere, race to introduce voting restrictions, for example, strict voting ID laws. Um, some of those are now being rolled back as power shifts in state legislatures. But there seems to be a continued fundamental challenge that while the Constitution mentions the right to vote five times, voting is mainly discussed in the negative. And so that's left a lot of room for interpretation by the courts. Um, and the Supreme Court has essentially upheld voting rights as a privilege that states may observe at their convenience. Um, and the burden of voter protection is left to Congress and individual state legislator, legislatures, leaving voting rights subject to political and partisan whims. Um, do you think there should be a constitutional amendment, or are there other mechanisms that might ensure a fundamental right to vote in the United States? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and it's a nice coincidence that we're having this discussion during the week that marks the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote. Um, you know, I, I think I think an amendment would be tough, especially in this political um, situation, but um, it's a nice thing to strive for. You know, the Constitution clearly states that state legislatures and Congress um, get to regulate the time, place, and manner of elections. Um, but, you know, and I've been reading, there are a lot of election law experts, you know, who have a lot more expertise than I, who have been writing about the fact that the Supreme Court has not, uh, yet foreclosed the possibility of voting being considered speech under the first amendment. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, if you look at some of the, the, the various forms of speech that are protected under the first amendment, um, one being spending money on, campaigns, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, voting is an expression of, of speech. And if, you know, if, if people are protected in, in how they spend money on getting the votes in the elections, I think at the very least that, um, 
you know, voting should be given the same protections under the First Amendment. And, you know, not to mention the fact that, you know, flag burning, certain forms of hate speech, you know, are given First Amendment protection. I think I think figuring out a way to, uh, you know, ultimately get the right to vote protected as, as an expression of speech uh, in the First Amendment would be the best way to go. You've segued nicely to our next question. <laughs> um, one of the most daunting issues plaguing our political and electoral institutions is that of campaign finance. The rise of the super PACs and so-called dark money groups following the 2010 Supreme Court decision, Citizens United versus FEC, has led to seemingly unrestricted corporate spending and lobbying efforts to influence political outcomes. How can campaign vi finance be addressed within the confines of the Citizens United decision? You know, there are two primary methods of campaign finance regulation. You limit contributions or you require disclosure. And clearly, Supreme Court has determined that um, corporate speech, corporate money is, is something that is protected um, and they can, you know, spend money on elections in an independent way in an unlimited um, fashion. So, you know, within that framework, the focus should be on, on how best to uh, disclose the identity of the people or the companies or the coalitions who are, you know, trying to influence um, voters' behavior come election time. So since Citizens United, there's been $4.5 billion spent uh, independently on elections versus in the previous two cycles, or sorry, previous two <clears throat> decades before the decision, only $750 million. So, you know, there has been, um, you know, a, a massive increase in independent spending. We haven't seen, you know, massive direct um, spending on IEs by major corporations. You know, they account for um, only one-tenth of independent expenditure spending since Citizens United. I think the problem is, as you kind of noted in your question, has been the rise of dark money organizations, 501c4, social welfare <clears throat> organizations, which are by law allowed to spend up to, you know, 49%, depending on how uh, aggressive a, an organization is on um, political expenses. And, you know, the... The question there is when when um, C fours are, are spending IEs, and but they don't you know C fours they also don't disclose the identities of, of donors to uh, the IRS. You know it's it's there is a bit of a loophole there, and there was a, a recent crew decision, and the FEC has come out with with regulations. You know, but you know the FEC first of all they don't have a quorum right now. They're, you know, hopelessly, you know, inept at, at putting out you know, common sense, easy to understand um, campaign finance regulations. And there are loopholes even within the disclosure framework um, from the crew decision that, you know, if I'm a if I donate to a 501c4, but I don't earmark it for political purposes, they're not going to disclose my contribution even if I know that my money is going to be spent on an independent expenditure, right? So, so that's, that's where I think, you know, the work needs to be done. Um, it's on the disclosure side because, again, clearly, um, at least under Citizens United, 
there are no limits on that spending. So if I could ask a follow-up question, there, there are some yeah. political scientists who would say that, you know, the amount of money is not the problem, right? In fact, we probably need more money. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's probably, you know, the, the problem is, you know, where it's coming from and how it's spent. And part of the challenges of this new campaign finance regime that we're in is that it has also had the effect of kind of hollowing out the national parties in some sense. Um, so I wonder if there are other implications or, or ways that we could go about addressing campaign finance. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, I've, I've, I've seen that as well. It's, it's interesting. I mean, um, you know, there are, there are also people who, who, you know, on the flip side who think that the parties should not have nearly as much power as they, as they do. Um, and, um, you know, other people who say, you know, we shouldn't limit any, we should have no limits on what, um, people can give to candidates because you know if you're talking about hard dollars then at least you know that you know that money is being spent by the candidates right and the parties versus um you know dark money organizations corporations what have you so i mean it's 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 been a ongoing debate and it's clearly you know with with the amount of money that's spent on elections right now i mean it's it's a really important uh debate but um I don't see any any uh, solutions being easy to come by or um, anything in, in our immediate future. The manipulation of legislative districts, whether for partisan purposes, to protect incumbents or other reasons, can distort political outcomes. This year, Virginians are going to vote on a ballot measure to amend the state constitution that would transfer power to draw the state's congressional and legislative districts from the state legislature to a redistricting commission composed of state legislators and citizens. And other states have adopted similar reforms. Um, what do you view as the implications for such a measure that voters should consider? And more broadly, what do you think can be done to end gerrymandering? Well, uh, I mean, this is a really important question. And, you know, for Virginia voters, I think the question is, take a look at the system as it's currently um, both written and um, executed. And is it working for voters or is it working for parties? And if it's just working for parties, then, you know, this um, commission that's on the ballot, even if there are going to be uh, state legislators that are part of the commission, you know, that may be a step in the right direction, even if it's not the perfect system, um, you know, even if it's not anything close to, you know, I think people think the models are Arizona, state of Washington, where there are no state legislators, you know, on the independent commissions, and you have much more competitive districts in those states. So, I mean, I think that's the main question for for Virginia voters as they go to the polls in November. Um, but just, you know, more generally, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of the independent commission model. Um, I think it takes the um, inherent conflict of interest concerns out of the question when you don't have uh, state legislators on the commissions. And I mean, Again, what the, the parties, you know, it, it takes the power out of the party's hands. 
Um, I'd say that you know, no, neither party has the moral high ground on this one. I mean, the Supreme Court, in their recent ruling that um, that you know courts can't weigh in on partisan gerrymandering, they had a, a case from Maryland where the Democrats had had drawn some pretty ridiculous districts, and they had a case from North Carolina um, where Republicans had had done so. So, you know, this is a Listen, you know, politics is a power game. It's not surprising. Um, the parties are, are going to do whatever they, they can to to stay in power. But, you know, I, I think, you know, we the people, we should be looking at uh, measures that that make it, you know, fair representation and, and you know, really allow the, um, the legislatures to... Um, be beholden to to the people in a fair represent, representation manner. So this has been a, a great conversation on voting rights. And our final question for you today is one that we ask of all of our guests. And it's, what would you do to strengthen democracy? Uh, what would I do? I would do a few things. I'd, I'd start by putting a ballot automatically in every registered voter's hands. Um, I think the, the most important thing for a healthy democracy is, um, you know, civic participation and participation participation in the in the voting process. And you know, the United States has a has a pr pretty bad track record on that in terms of advanced democracies around the world. And you know, what can we do to increase participation? I think that I think the most common sense measure is just getting ballots automatically in, in people's hands. I also think that. Um, same day registration is important. People should be able to register to vote, you know, the day of the election, if if that's, you know, what they need. Um, I think independents should be able to vote in primaries because currently the country is about a third Democrat, a third Republican, and a third um, independent. And there may actually be more independents in the country than both Democrats or Republicans. And, you know, let's open up the primaries you look at California, they, they recently changed to a, a top two um, primary system. And I think that, again, allows for, you know, the, the, the people who get voted into office to, to represent the, um, you know, the, the most representative portion of the, of the um, voting population. So. It's a combination of, of a number of voting reforms, and there's a lot of work to do. There's been a lot of progress made, but um, I'm generally uh, bullish on you know the future of the democracy, and um, what a time to be doing this.